and welcome to the Open Data Institute, for those of you who haven't been before, um, and also welcome to um, ODI Fridays, um, where we, if, each week we take a different subject and look at how it might relate to open data or data. Um, this week, I'm so pleased, because we, we kind of organised this quite a while ago, is my good friend Richard, <laughs> um, who's writer, teacher, the list goes on, he currently, you know... I can't settle in anything. <laughs> Including being introduced. Yeah, well, I can't handle that. I get shy. Um, and when we were, what we were talking, he's currently writing, I'm sure he'll tell you, um, a series of short um, books on science fiction, and he is a science fiction writer. So it's kind of a, I, I don't even know what the next 20 minutes is going to be. The format is that uh, we have a talk for 20 minutes and then there's time for discussion at the end. Is it? Um, yeah. Oh, all right. Yeah, don't worry. This is all it's Please fun. discuss during. <laughs> Otherwise, um, we'll never get through it. Okay. Um, and if you want to follow on Twitter, it's ODI Fridays. Um, but over to you, Richard. I have a tendency to info dump, so please butt in at any point. Um, and I always, with the curse of PowerPoint, always put far too many slides in the skip over half of them. The full stories in the slides, so you can take it away and digest. Hello. Um, Catherine has introduced me. I have done lots of things, but I mean, I've been broadly working around creative uses of technology since the early 90s. Um, and I've reflected that in, in sort of academia, commercial world, and in other ways. Um, I suppose if I call myself anything, I'm a creative technologist, which is the hardest job title in the world to find if you're actually looking for work. Um, getting a bit better, but there you go. Um, but I am a broadly a creative technologist. I've written things about interactive stuff. Uh, I've still got a 10-year-old book on interactive marketing on Amazon for some reason, and then taking it off. Um, and various other things. But just in the last sort of couple of years, what I've been doing is trying to sort of take what I think about technology and sort of manifest that through stories. So I'm working on a full-scale novel and what I've been doing at the, in the meantime is sort of putting short stories together uh, about different things from conversations I've had with people or you know, thoughts of things that I didn't really want to fit in the novel and so on. And, and I've been putting those on Kindle and I've been using it to get feedback. Have I sold as many as Jeffrey Archer? No. Um, nobody in self-publishing does apart from the old few. But it is a way of me getting feedback and practicing and sort of going through that iterative stuff that I tell people to do when I talk about things like product development and innovation. Well, I'm innovating on myself, so I'm going through an iterative sort of phase at the moment on that. So, my day job at the moment is actually working with health, health technologies, and I'm working with big data around wearable tech, primarily to look at how we can start to predict people's health and so on. So I'm heavily into the sort of data space and talking about this to Catherine, she said, well, why don't you come along and do a talk about the sci-fi stuff, seeing as you're working with data anyway during the day. So here I am. Um, it's sci-fi. It's, <laughs> it's a very maligned genre. One thing I've found, um, having been a, a sci-fi reader since I was age seven, one thing I've found writing it is how much people are willing to attack you and tell you it's not good as a genre, why it's not valid literacy, you know, um, literature, 
and so on. And it's got to the point where, you know, it's it's sort of often ignored, it's pilloried, it's, you know, stunned by phases. Um, and a lot of authors who write sci-fi are starting to move away from that tag and call it speculative fiction. And that, that's an interesting move in itself, in, the, in the sort of having to rebrand itself. And I think you can look at that with... Um, now, let me look at her name. I can never pronounce it. Audrey Niffenegger, who wrote The Time Traveler's Wife. Very much a traditional science fiction book in terms of premise and its effects on people and so on. But she really doesn't want that called science fiction. And, and I think that's pretty much the same. Margaret Atwood is in the same space with things like The Handmaid's Tale. Now, on the one hand, you've got The Handmaid, Handmaid's Tale, which is a, a sort of... It's very much in the same space as Brave New World. But you've got the author of one happy with the sci-fi tag in, in his day and the one now isn't. Um, I think it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's really interesting. It's, um, one of the things I've found writing uh, is that best sci-fi for me is the stuff that takes a real-world problem takes a technology or a technological situation or an intervention and reflects on how that might affect the behaviours of people. And that tends to be where what we, what we used to call hard sci-fi sits as a genre. And hard sci-fi is very much the Arthur C. Clarke end of the genre. The stuff that's real, not the fantasy stuff that you see in Star Trek. There's a lot of talk about how Star Trek invented and sort of foreshadowed a lot of technologies. Well, they kind of did but only by look, very much fantasy, you can just zoom off to the planets faster than light, um, and be particle streams to and from a planet, and all that sort of stuff. There seems to be, given our current understanding of physics, no real way of doing things like that. And so it is largely a fantasy thing. And very much, when you look at the Star Trek style genre, you could have that in space, or you could have it set in a world where Robin Hood exists and the stories would be exactly the same. Um, they're very, very much fantasy stories. And I think, from my point of view, I'm very much more interested in the real world and, and how technology impacts um, people. Yeah. I think uh, one of the things you should know about sci-fi, before I go into data, and I know this is going to be done fairly quickly, and I'll just tell this for a minute and halfway through, is that science fiction has a history, but it is a recent invention, effectively, as a usable genre. Um, there are history, there are fantasy stories being written throughout history, there are um, all sorts of books that hinted at super weapons and so on. Uh, Japanese tales talk about travels to the moon and going 300 years into the future. But as a mainstream genre, it really came to fruition in the mid-1800s. So it is actually an invention of the technological age. It does have a history, okay? So we've got, you know, back to Gulliver, who used very much scientific interventions to sort of bring out the ridiculousness of people. So there are large-scale floating gunships and things like this in Gulliver's uh, travels. Francis Bacon uh, wrote this piece, New Atlantis, um, about a utopian society which had new artificial metals and things like this. So he was thinking about alloys, vivisection, genetic manipulation, all that sort of stuff was in there. And of course, you've got Mary Shelley, who wrote Frankenstein, which you know is often thought of as a major sci-fi work, but the more 
the more sci-fi piece she wrote was The Last Man, which was about the last survivor on Earth, the man who roamed the Earth picking up elements of, you know, bits of the uh, extinct society. It's a really interesting sort of book. Um, and one thing that really interested me was how people... where people set things. I found this online, which is a really nice diagram, where it shows you the sort of trends in what people write in science fiction. So if you look back to the 1880s, which is where the real first boom started, um, you've got three settings, set in the near future, mid-future, and far future. And you'll see in the 1880s, we were in the mid-future, so up to 500 years, most sci-fi was written you know, just at the end of where we could foresee and do it, but a huge chunk was written in the far future. So, in a way, we were at the sort of fantasy end of things. Similarly, in the 1890s, now in the first part of the 20th century, the first 10 years, suddenly there's a big boom in stuff that was written in the near future. And I think what's really interesting about that is that was the time when a couple of things happened. One was mass production emerged, and the other thing was flight power flight, um, among other things, but it was a real point of a, uh, you know, point in society where inventions sort of flourish. As a result, I suspect what people did was look at the inventions that were coming out and start writing about it. Here, they haven't got the inventions, they just fantasised. And you can see all the way down here, it sort of varied through the 20th century, and then you get to the 80s, and the same thing happened. What happened in the 80s? We entered the world of computers. Mobile phones appeared, connectivity, cyberspace, the first rumblings of cyberspace appeared. And suddenly we got a lot of speculation about what would happen in the next two years. And I think there's a very interesting trend here. Um, God knows what's going to happen next. But it is, what, what that tells me is basically people, sci-fi in particular, tends to reflect the society it's in. Because we see Star Trek, and Star Trek in its own way actually reflected the society of the late 60s. Um, but as did Arthur C. Clarke and Isaac Asimov. <laughs> you tried the page off the page down. Yeah, tried it. Um, I'm just going to do this, and I'll just go down them. Okay, it doesn't matter. Um, and Brave New World was a, a great example of this. Brave New World very much reflected the time it was written. There was a lot of talk about eugenics, you know, even at the time Churchill and people like that were proposing, you know, sterilisation of people that were bad for the gene pool. Um, and Brave New World was very much of its time. And I think that's a really good example of that. And, and also it understood that the science had changed. For the first time we understood genetics and so on. And this, as a great piece of science fiction, married the two. And I think when you get to data... You know, and, and we will move on to data now. We've got time. You know, you can use data for multiple things. It's, it's effectively, you know, a set of numbers to us when we work with it with computers. Um, God, page, page down. But my reveal's now not going to work. So you can make personal numbers. How do you do that? Well, an example might be here. So here we have Android Man, 2011. 
sorry about the lack of detail. Um, but this is put together basically from the profile of Android users. And this is composite. So we're seeing, you know, what marketing people do. We're seeing creating characters in data. No, I haven't. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. So, move on to the first set of books I was going to talk about quickly. One of the greatest sort of um, things that set me up was reading Asimov's Foundation series. I can't talk about data and science fiction without mentioning Foundation. It's the king of data stories. And he got lots and lots of stories out of the Foundation principle. But it's effectively, Foundation uh, is based on a premise. And it's based on a premise that if you have a large enough sample set of people you can predict their behavior en masse. So he invented this term psychohistory. You'll see psychohistory used online a lot. And it actually was a branch of sociology. And so the two terms sometimes get confused. But psychohistory within Asimov is fictional. Is that the guy who was working with Obama named Silver to predict the, um, the votes and how they would fall? Sort of. No, be, well, no, Asimov wrote it. It wasn't wasn't really a functional piece of mathematics. Uh, it is interesting, I'll just talk in a minute about how actually principles have come back into play. But yeah, um, basically what Asimov said, and he just invented this, and he invented this because he was a scientist, he understood science, but I think he understood people, and he was very interested in all the emergence of, you know, this is mid 20th century, you know, the emergence of understanding psychology, the new mathematics that are coming out, and also he lived in a world that was command and control. So, you know, he was born into a society in about 1920 in Russia that moved from, you know, its previous sort of monarchy, monarchist setup to a top-down command and control communist state. They fled, went to America. By the time he was writing, and he got into the 40s when he started writing the foundation series, clearly there were blocks emerging and this idea that things had to be big supernatural supernatural blocks of power. So, you know, immediately after this, we got the emergence of the Cold War, we got the Soviet bloc, we got the West, we got NATO, etc. And I suspect sat within this, Asimov, you know, is looking at this and it's shaping his thinking. So we have on the one hand maths, which is emerging. We've got the, you know, the progenitors of, of things like game theory, chaos mathematics, we've got quantum physics, we've got all this sort of stuff emerging. We have an understanding of psychology that's come through Freud, Jung, and right down the line through Nietzsche and stuff over the previous sort of 50 or 60 years. And he's pulling them together. But what's interesting about it is he never treated psychohistory as something that dealt with individuals. It was always about maths. And the premise of the novels is that psychohistory is impossible unless you have a fully inhabited galaxy where there are enough people to provide a big enough sample. And it is derailed in the books by having a mutant that is unpredictable. And it's a, it's a really interesting take on this. And I think for years people have sort of wanted to be able to predict this and, they, you know, and to use this type of mathematics. And they are doing it. They're starting to do it. What we've seen in the last few years 
you know, is a move to big data sets. And certainly what I'm doing is now I'm getting to the point where I'm working with data in such a way that I can start to predict someone's health. But that can only work if I've got enough data. So the systems I'm building have to have the data we collect and we have to have extra data. And there are, you know, for instance, health, in, in the health space, there are data sets out there you can buy. And you build incredibly detailed case studies. And then you build a semantic layer on top that actually infers relationships between data. And with this, you can predict trends. And, and some of the stuff is coming out at sort of 90, 95% accuracy. Um, it's really interesting stuff. <laughs> Um, Asimov, did his actual psychohistory work? No. But the idea that you could predict on mass, um, you know, is still there and is working. And I think there's a lot of, obviously I'll leave the slide there, there's an awful lot of discussion on Quora about this and it's worth a look. But also, what, when I was digging around in this, I found out that, and this is an answer slightly to Nicole's question, there was a terrific um, piece done two years ago that predicted, retrospectively unfortunately, the insurgencies in Afghanistan with uncanny detail. They fed every fact they could get into the system and predicted what would happen. So there is an element of what Asimov talked about that is here now. What Asimov didn't have was the computational power. And what he didn't have was the insights that we've got from building large long-term data sets. But it's incredibly visionary to have sat there in 1941 and come up with this thing. You know, and I noticed somebody, uh, there was some professor from King's College giving a talk saying, was psychohistory correct recently in London? So it's entering the academic space. Now, the second thing I want to talk about is something that's on TV at the moment, on Channel 5, I think. Person of interest. Interesting. That's not had a huge sort of impact. It's a really interesting piece of science fiction. It is based on the fact, and there's always a premise, and there's always a bit of fantasy in this, a guy developed a computer system that can use data and can access public systems and can track people in such a way that they can start to predict crimes. You watch it? Oh, yeah. No, I was going to ask you. Yeah. Um, it's got two reasonably big names, a guy out of Lost here, and Jim Caviezel. Um, what's his name? Michael Emerson. But it does actually do a lot of, you know, it has its usual policeman. This guy's a disaffected CIA, ex-CIA special operative. You know, this guy's a, a flawed genius, you know, who's a multi-billionaire. Um, the usual setups that you need for television. But underneath it, and what's really interesting about it is, in a way that Asimov almost did, the computer and the data processing is actually almost a character in itself. And I think Asimov certainly got psychohistory to the point where it's a stronger character than the actual characters he talked about. It's certainly being remembered further. And likewise, with person of interest, the really most interesting bits are the computer. And there's a lovely episode where called Super, which was on a couple of months ago, where you started to see how the computer itself, and you, the computer's rendered through a display. So you cut to a screen and it 
shows you people and it brings up augmented reality data about people it's looking at, etc. Um, but it shows you the development of it from 2005 and it's a fantastic thing. Because you, on the one hand you've got a level of character, a story that is talking about a crime, but underneath it you've got this computer personality evolving. I find that really interesting because that actually is taking on the acting of psychohistory a step further and saying, okay, well let's bring it to life. And actually there's a, a feeling in the series as you watch it, and it grows, the computer is sentient. And this is a very great interest, because some of the stuff I write is actually almost identical to that, which is, you know, but it's obviously something that's in the air at the moment. And I think data is really interesting, because I think writers are starting to see the potential of data as character. And I, I find that weird, but absolutely wonderful. The odd thing is, when I was thinking about this, I thought about marketing, or working in marketing agencies, of course, people have always thought that in marketing agencies. They've looked at data about people and tried to create personas, and they have made this, and they've tested it against that. And they've always done that, but they don't seem to take the characters much further. What you're getting with the new bits of science fiction that are coming out that are dealing with data is that they're embedding the character, and the character of the, you know, that is built on the data is actually becoming more and more important. And certainly, if you watch Person of Interest, try and find the episode super. Um, it, it is terrific. Um, Let's see if we can open a hyperlink. There's a Channel 5 trailer. How exciting. Channel 5. I, th I think while that's going on, um, for me, person of interest is of interest because it is bringing the computer and the data to the front of the character. Why It's actually quite a, quite a good series. Um, oh, stop it. Um, adverts before pre and post rolls. Uh, I'm going to obviously, as Catherine said, do a little advert, but it is what I tend to write about. What I've been writing about here is the sort of impacts of that sort of thing. That story there, social psycho, is about um, these profiles going psychotic. They're only short stories, they're cheap. And I'm 79, I think, at the minute, 1997. They're short stories, but what I'm interested in there was, well, okay, if you start imbuing data, if you've got this data and you start matching it to real people, at what point does it become a personal source? And if you then start to link it with artificial intelligence or some kind of intelligence, could it actually pick up the personality flaws of the people it is based on? So if you are entering a world where in, say, 10 years, you're, you've got 10 different big data profiles that exist, you know, could one of those profiles focus on your mental illnesses? And if so, could that go psychotic itself? So, you know, it, it, there are interesting things, and I think these questions we ask when we write this sort of stuff is really just reflecting back to you. You know, what do you do in your day job? You know, what are the impacts of that? And I think with some of the other things here, that's a rather horrible one about a dating service with a twist at the end, um, <laughs> which I can't believe the twist. Um, it's a bit sicker than I normally write, but there you go. Um, Last and First Men is interesting. Going right back again. So we've gone from the 40s to now, and we're back in the 30s. Earl of Stapledon, much forgotten in a lot of ways as a writer. He wrote incredible, long, 
interesting books that influenced the plants and the atomos hugely. Um, Last of First Men was basically a history of the human race from start to finish in 10 million years through nine different evolutions of the human um, body. But one of the things he wrote about there was it particularly always stuck with me was he wrote about the idea that um, the data, the knowledge and information could have mass. Which is another thought that I never really we talked at one point about the moon being pulled out of its orbit by the mass of the intelligence of the inhabitants of the Earth. Now it sounds fantastic, but we don't know what data there is in reality. There's a thing called the holographic principle. That states that you know the whole universe, effectively, effectively our universe in very simple terms, may well be holographic reconstruction from, from the event horizon black hole, and that the data, and the bit we exist with it, the data on the event arrived that black hole, it's a very serious physics. And so it's, it's looking at, the physicists are looking at data in new ways. They're looking at data as being, they're looking at the world as being a, a three-dimensional projection from the cosmological event arrived, right, which is based entirely on data. And Stapleton in the 30s kind of, sorry? Well, physicists simply, and, and bear me bear in mind I'm not a physicist, so bear with me, I don't agree in physics. Um, they're saying that, and it fits the model of the Big Bang actually, which if you look at it, if you imagine the Big Bang coming out, you know, if you put the opposite effect in the middle of a black hole, and you have this immense thing, and we're somewhere within this explosion. The cosmological event arises at the point at which you can't see any further. So we can see back 13 billion years. We don't know what's beyond that 13 billion years of what's not. What we do know is the universe is full of data. It's data in quantum form, the building to atoms, molecules, etc., all the way from Newtonian physics. But that data is, is beginning to be thought as in one valid theory, looking up, you know, is maybe sitting around the event horizon black hole. Now, this is when David Icke says the whole world is a hologram and the room by lizards. He's getting the hologram made from the holographic principle that he's misinterpreting it. Um, for his own end. He's a brilliant fantasy writer. Um, but there is a theory about what struck me is how much you know that random idea in this book from 1933 actually sort of matched in that, that you know maybe there's more to data than meets the eye on a universal scale. And that if we are inside a data construct, what are the implications of that? And that's a whole new lecture for physicists, I'm afraid. Um, which brings me to the last piece of fiction I'm going to talk about, given the time scale, which is another Asimov piece. And I had to include this. It's called The Last Question. And it's a, one of the best short stories I think I've ever read. It basically describes, this is again written in the early 50s, Dawn of Computing, hence the big computer. Um, and basically, it's just a very number of short scenarios where people ask this computer and its successors one question. And that is, effectively, is there a way to reverse entropy? Okay, the whole universe is in an entropic state, losing energy. You're not losing energy, energy is flowing out of 
that amount of income to loan into a state of basically low entropy from. Okay? That's what you think. Is there a way to reverse entropy so the universe can go on forever is the question. Now in this story, they asked this four or five times over the billions of years. Asimov came of near where computing was starting, so he imagined one big computer. It came from that world where the guy predicted there would only be five computers. Yeah. He did, nobody predicted computers in everything. But he took this computer and he said, well, the next generation will be more intelligent, the next one will be more intelligent than that, until the last iteration of the computer didn't have physical form and it existed in the atoms of the universe as an intelligence. And still there were humanity, there was humanity around, and humanity also existed among the atoms. And they still asked. And all the computer would say is insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Which kind of reminded me a lot of, and reali I realised where this came from, which is deep thought in the Hitchhiker's Guide. And the reality is, of course, in the last question, they didn't actually know what question to ask. This is really what Biblos Adams was having a laugh at the expense of. Um, because actually that's the point of that. This computer can tell you the answer, but you've no idea what the question is. Now, in the Asimov story, I'm going to play you a bit, actually, I think. Find the uh, YouTube link. I'll play you a bit and then finish, and you can talk and ask questions. The, uh, where's the... Um, Hyperlink, okay. The last question was asked for the first time at a jest on May 21st, 2061, at a time when humanity first stepped into the light. The question came about as a result of a $5 bet over highballs, and it happened this way. Alexander Adele and Bertrand Lubov were two of the faithful attendants. I'm not going to play the whole thing obviously, but I will go to the end. Now, bear in mind, the question has been asked to the computer several times, okay, uh, and this is the end, which is a lovely way to end. And new stars have been built of the dust between the stars, some by natural processes, some by man himself, and those were going to. White dwarfs might yet be crashed together, and of the mighty forces so released, new stars built. But only one star for every thousand white dwarves destroyed, and those would come to an end, too. Man said, carefully husbanded, as directed by the cosmic AC, the energy that is left will last for billions of years. But even so, said man, eventually it will all come to an end. However it may be husbanded, however stretched out, the energy once expanded is gone and cannot be restored. Entropy must increase forever to the maximum. And throughout all yes, the sir. time, the computer has Can been gathering data about from, from the point it was first asked the question AC. in 2061. The cosmic AC surrounded them, but not in space. Not a fragment of it was in space. It was in hyperspace and made of something that was neither matter nor energy. Man said, how may entropy be reversed? The cosmic AC said, 
There is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Man said, collect additional data. The cosmic AC said, I will do so. I have been doing so for a hundred billion years. My predecessors and I have been asked this question many times. All the data I have remains insufficient. Will there come a time when data will be sufficient or is the problem insoluble? The cosmic AC said, no problem is insoluble. Man said, when will you have enough data to answer the question? The cosmic AC said, there is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Will you keep working on it? Asked man. The cosmic AC said, I will. Man said, we shall wait. The stars and galaxies died and snuffed out. And space grew black after 10 trillion years of running down. One by one, man fused with AC, each physical body losing its mental identity in a manner that was somehow not a loss, but a gain. Man's last mind paused before fusion looking over a space that included nothing but the dregs of one last dark star and nothing besides but incredibly thin matter agitated randomly by the tag ends of heat wearing out asymptotically to the absolute zero man said ac is this the end can this chaos not be reversed into the universe once more can that not be done AC said, there is as yet insufficient data for a meaningful answer. Man's last mind fused. And only AC existed in that hyperspace. Matter and energy had ended and with it space and time. Even AC existed only for the sake of the one last question that it had never answered. From the time a half-drunken computer technician ten trillion years before had asked the question. All other questions had been answered. And until this last question was answered, AC might not release his own consciousness. All collective data had come to a final end. Nothing was left to be collected. But all collective data had yet to be completely correlated and put together in all possible relationships. A timeless interval was spent in doing that. And it came to pass that AC learned how to reverse the direction of entropy. But there was now no man to whom AC might give the answer to the last question. No matter. The answer, by demonstration, would take care of that too. And for another timeless interval, AC thought how best to do this. The consciousness of AC encompassed all of what had once been a universe and brooded over what was now chaos. Step by step, it must be done. And AC said, Let there be light. And there was light. Which is a way of ending that. Um, yeah, which is a very nice story um, about the ultimate sort of fake of data. Really.
creepy questions out of trawling through stuff I got in relation to data just to finish up these. Am I asking the right thing? It's a really important thing when you're working with data. <laughs> and science fiction writers throughout all the stuff I read are all often you know, probing that. Are we asking the right questions? Um, what are the real impacts of what I'm doing? If you look at personal interest, it's frightening, entertaining, in equal measure. Um, and who watches people who collect the data? And I couldn't convert that into Latin, so I use that phrase. <laughs> um, I don't speak Latin, I speak Barnsley. Um, that's it, really. Thank you. Sorry, I went on a slightly late. No, Richard, thank you very much.